The infant, at the moment of birth, would feel the fear of dying if a gracious fate did not preserve it from any awareness of the anxiety involved in the separation from mother and from its intrauterine existence. Even after being born, the infant is hardly different from what it was before birth. It cannot recognize objects. It is not yet aware of itself and of the world as being outside of itself. It only feels the positive stimulation of warmth and food, and it does not yet differentiate warmth and food from its source, mother. Mother is warmth. Mother is food. Mother is the euphoric state of satisfaction and security. This state is one of narcissism, to use Freud's term. The outside reality, persons and things, have meaning only in terms of their satisfying or frustrating the inner state of the body. Real is only what is within. What is outside is real only in terms of my needs, never in terms of its own qualities or needs. When the child grows and develops, he becomes capable of perceiving things as they are. The satisfaction in being fed becomes differentiated from the nipple, the breast from the mother. Eventually, the child experiences his thirst, the satisfying milk, the breast and the mother as different entities. He learns to perceive many other things as being different, as having an existence of their own. At this point, he learns to give them names. At the same time, he learns to handle them, learns that fire is hot and painful, that mother's body is warm and pleasurable, that wood is hard and heavy, that paper is light and can be torn. He learns how to handle the people, that mother will smile when I eat, that she will take me in her arms when I cry, that she will praise me when I have a bowel movement. All these experiences become crystallized and integrated in the experience. I am loved. I am loved because I am mother's child. I am loved because I am helpless. I am loved because I am beautiful, admirable. I am loved because mother needs me. To put it in a more general formula, I am loved for what I am, or perhaps more accurately, I am loved because I am. This experience of being loved by mother is a passive one. There is nothing I have to do in order to be loved. Mother's love is unconditional. All I have to do is to be, to be her child. Mother's love is bliss, is peace. It need not be acquired. It need not be deserved. But there is a negative side too to the unconditional quality of mother's love. Not only does it not need to be deserved, it also cannot be acquired, produced, controlled. If it is there, it is like a blessing. If it is not there, it is as if all beauty had gone out of life and there is nothing I can do to create it. For most children before the age of eight and a half to 10, the problem is almost exclusively that of being loved, of being loved for what one is. The child up to this age does not yet love. He responds gratefully, joyfully to being loved. At this point of the child's development, a new factor enters into the picture.
that of a new feeling of producing love by one's own activity. For the first time, the child thinks of giving something to mother or father, of producing something, a poem, a drawing, or whatever it may be. For the first time in the child's life, the idea of love is transformed from being loved into loving, into creating love. It takes many years from this first beginning to the maturing of love. Eventually, the child, who may now be an adolescent, has overcome his egocentricity. The other person is not any more primarily a means to the satisfaction of his own needs. The needs of the other person are as important as his own. In fact, they have become more important. To give has become more satisfactory, more joyous than to receive. To love, more important even than being loved. By loving, he has left the prison cell of aloneness and isolation, which was constituted by the state of narcissism and self-centeredness. He feels a sense of new union, of sharing, of oneness. More than that, he feels the potency of producing love by loving, rather than the dependence of receiving by being loved. And for that reason, having to be small, helpless, sick, or good. Infantile love follows the principle, I love because I am loved. Mature love follows the principle, I am loved because I love. Immature love says, I love you because I need you. Mature love says, I need you because I love you. Closely related to the development of the capacity of love is the development of the object of love. The first months and years of the child are those where his closest attachment is to the mother. This attachment begins before the moment of birth, when mother and child are still one, although they are two. Birth changes the situation in some respects, but not as much as it would appear. The child, while now living outside of the womb, is still completely dependent on mother. But daily he becomes more independent. He learns to walk, to talk, to explore the world on his own. The relationship to mother loses some of its vital significance, and instead the relationship to father becomes more and more important. In order to understand the shift from mother to father, we must consider the essential differences in quality between motherly and fatherly love. We have already spoken about motherly love. Motherly love by its very nature is unconditional. Mother loves the newborn infant because it is her child, not because the child has fulfilled any specific condition or lived up to any specific expectation. Unconditional love corresponds to one of the deepest longings, not only of the child, but of every human being. On the other hand, to be loved because of one's merit, because one deserves it, always leaves doubt. Maybe I did not please the person whom I want to love me. Maybe this or that. There was always a fear that love could disappear. Furthermore, deserved love easily leaves a bitter feeling that one is not loved for oneself that one is loved only because one pleases, that one is, 
in the last analysis, not loved at all, but used. No wonder that we all cling to the longing for motherly love, as children and also as adults. Most children are lucky enough to receive motherly love. As adults, the same longing is much more difficult to fulfill. In the most satisfactory development, it remains a component of normal erotic love. Often it finds expression in religious forms, more often than in neurotic forms. The relationship to father is quite different. Mother is the home we come from. She is nature, soil, the ocean. Father does not represent any such natural home. He has little connection with the child in the first years of its life, and his importance for the child in this early period cannot be compared with that of mother. But while the father does not represent the natural world, he represents the other pole of human existence, the world of thought, of man-made things, of law and order, of discipline, of travel and adventure. Father is the one who teaches the child, who shows him the road into the world. Closely related to this function is one which is connected with socio-economic development. When private property came into existence, when private property could be inherited by one of the sons, father began to look for that son to whom he could leave his property. Naturally, that was the one whom father thought best fitted to become his successor, the son who was most like him, and consequently whom he liked the most. Fatherly love is conditional love. Its principle is, I love you because you fulfill my expectations, because you do your duty, because you are like me. In conditional fatherly love we find, as with unconditionally motherly love, a negative and a positive aspect. The negative aspect is the very fact that fatherly love has to be deserved, that it can be lost if one does not do what is expected. In the nature of fatherly love lies the fact that obedience becomes the main virtue, that disobedience is the main sin, and its punishment the withdrawal of motherly love. The positive side is equally important. Since his love is conditioned, I can do something to acquire it, I can work for it. His love is not outside of my control as motherly love is. The mother's and the father's attitudes towards the child correspond to the child's own needs. The infant needs mother's unconditional love and care physiologically as well as psychically. The child, after six, begins to need father's love, his authority and guidance. Mother has the function of making him secure in life. Father has the function of teaching him, guiding him to cope with these problems with which the particular society the child has been born into confronts him. In the ideal case, mother's love does not try to prevent the child from growing up, does not try to put a premium on helplessness. Mother should have faith in life, hence not be over-anxious and not infect the child with her anxiety. Part of her life should be the wish that the child becomes independent and eventually separate from her. 
Father's love should be guided by principles and expectations. It should be patient and tolerant, rather than threatening and authoritarian. It should give the growing child an increasing sense of competence, and eventually permit him to become his own authority and to dispense with that of father. Eventually, the mature person has come to the point where he is his own mother and his own father. He has, as it were, a motherly and fatherly conscience. Motherly conscience says, there is no misdeed, no crime, which could deprive you of my love, of my wish for your life and happiness. Fatherly conscience says, you did wrong, you cannot avoid accepting certain consequences of your wrongdoing. And most of all, you must change your ways if I am to like you. The mature person has become free from the outside mother and father figures and has built them up inside. In contrast to Freud's concept of the superego, however, he has built them inside not by incorporating mother and father, but by building a motherly conscience on his own capacity for love and a fatherly conscience on his reason and judgment. Furthermore, the mature person loves with both the motherly and the fatherly conscience, in spite of the fact that they seem to contradict each other. If he would only retain his fatherly conscience, he would become harsh and inhuman. If he would only retain his motherly conscience, he would be apt to lose judgment and to hinder himself and others in their development. In this development from mother-centered to father-centered attachment and their eventual synthesis lies the basis for mental health and the achievement of maturity. In the failure of this development lies the basic cause for neurosis. One cause for neurotic development can lie in the fact that a boy has a loving but overindulgent or domineering mother and a weak and uninterested father. In this case, he may remain fixed at an early mother attachment, and develop into a person who is dependent on mother, feels helpless, has the strivings characteristic of the receptive person, that is, to receive, to be protected, to be taken care of, and who has a lack of fatherly qualities, discipline, independence, and ability to master life by himself. He may try to find mothers in everybody, sometimes in women and sometimes in men, in a position of authority and power. If, on the other hand, the mother is cold, unresponsive, and domineering, he may either transfer the need for motherly protection to his father and subsequent father figures, in which case the end result is similar to the former case, or he will develop into a one-sidedly father-oriented person completely given to the principles of law, order, and authority, and lacking in the ability to expect or to receive unconditional love. This development is further intensified if the father is authoritarian and at the same time strongly attached to the son. What is characteristic of all these neurotic developments is the fact that one principle, the fatherly or the motherly, fails to develop or, and this is the case in the more severe neurotic development, that the roles of mother and father have confused both with regard to persons outside 
and with regard to those roles within the person. Further examination may show that certain types of neuroses, like the obsessional neurosis, develop more on the basis of a one-sided father attachment, while other, like hysteria, alcoholism, inability to assert oneself, and to cope with life realistically, and depressions, result from mother-centeredness. Love is not primarily a relationship to a specific person. It is an attitude, an orientation of character, which determines the relatedness of a person to the world as a whole, not toward one object of love. If a person loves only one other person and is indifferent to the rest of his fellow men, his love is not love, but a symbiotic attachment or an enlarged egotism. Yet, most people believe that love is constituted by the object, not by the faculty. In fact, they even believe that it is a proof of the intensity of their love, when they do not love anybody except the loved person. This is the same fallacy which we have already mentioned. Because one does not see that love is an activity, a power of the soul, one believes that all is necessary is to find the right object, and that everything goes by itself afterward. This attitude can be compared to that of a man who wants to paint, but who, instead of learning the art, claims that he has to just wait for the right object, and that he will paint beautifully when he finds it. If I truly love one person, I love all persons. I love the world. I love life. If I can say to somebody else, I love you, I must be able to say, I love in you everybody. I love through you the world. I love in you also myself. Erotic love. Brotherly love is love among equals. Motherly love is love for the helpless. Different as they are from each other, they have in common that they are by their nature not restricted to one person. If I love my brother, I love all brothers. If I love my child, I love all my children. Beyond that, I love all children, all that are in need of my help. In contrast to both types of love is erotic love. It is the craving for complete fusion, for union with another person. It is by its very nature exclusive and not universal. It is also perhaps the most deceptive form of love there is. First of all, it is often confused with the explosive experience of falling in love, the sudden collapse of the barriers which existed until that moment between two strangers. But as was pointed out before, this experience of sudden intimacy is by its very nature short-lived. After the stranger has become an intimately known person, there are no more barriers to be overcome. There is no more sudden closeness to be achieved. The loved person becomes as well known as oneself, or perhaps I should better say as little known. If there were more depth in the experience of the other person, if one could experience the infiniteness of his personality, the other person would never be so familiar. 
and the miracle of overcoming the barriers might occur every day anew. But for most people, their own person, as well as others, is soon explored and soon exhausted. For them, intimacy is established primarily through sexual contact, since they experience the separateness of the other person primarily as physical separateness. Physical union means overcoming separateness. Beyond that, there are other factors which, to many people, denote the overcoming of separateness. To speak of one's own personal life, one's hopes and anxieties, to show oneself with one's childlike or childish aspects, to establish a common interest vis-a-vis the world, all this is taken as overcoming separateness. Even to show one's anger, one's hate, one's complete lack of inhibition is taken for intimacy. And this may explain the perverted attraction married couples often have for each other, who seem intimate only when they are in bed or when they give vent to their mutual hate and rage. But all these types of closeness tend to become reduced more and more as time goes on. The consequence is one seeks love with a new person, with a new stranger. Again, the stranger is transformed into an intimate person. Again, the experience of falling in love is exhilarating and intense. And again, it slowly becomes less and less intense and ends in the wish for a new conquest, a new love. Always with the illusion that the new love will be different from the earlier ones. These illusions are greatly helped by the deceptive character of sexual desire. Sexual desire aims at fusion, and is by no means only a physical appetite, the relief of a painful tension. But sexual desire can be stimulated by the anxiety of aloneness, by the wish to conquer or be conquered, by vanity, by the wish to hurt and even destroy, as much as it can be stimulated by love. It seems that sexual desire can easily blend with and be stimulated by any strong emotion, of which love is only one. Because sexual desire is in the minds of most people coupled with the idea of love, they are easily misled to conclude that they love each other when they want each other physically. Love can inspire the wish for sexual union. In this case, the physical relationship is lacking in greediness, in a wish to conquer or to be conquered, but is blended with tenderness. If the desire for physical union is not stimulated by love, if erotic love is not also brotherly love, it never leads to union in more than an orgiastic, transitory sense. Sexual attraction creates, for the moment, the illusion of union, yet without love, this union leaves strangers as far apart as they were before. Sometimes it makes them ashamed of each other, or even makes them hate each other, because when the illusion has gone, they feel their estrangement even more markedly than before. Tenderness is by no means, as Freud believed, a sublimation of the sexual instinct. It is the direct outcome of brotherly love, and exists in physical as well as in non-physical forms of love.
In erotic love, there is an exclusiveness which is lacking in brotherly love and motherly love. This exclusive character of erotic love warrants some discussion. Frequently, the exclusiveness of erotic love is misinterpreted as meaning possessive attachment. One can often find two people in love with each other who feel no love for anybody else. Their love is, in fact, an egotism a deux. There are two people who identify themselves with each other and who solve the problem of separateness by enlarging the single individual into two. They have, a, they have the experience of overcoming aloneness, yet, since they are separated from the rest of mankind, they remain separated from each other and alienated from themselves. Their experience of union is an illusion. Erotic love is exclusive, but it loves in the other person all of mankind, all that is alive. It is exclusive only in the sense that I confuse myself fully and intensely with one person only. Erotic love excludes the love for others only in the sense of erotic fusion, full commitment in all aspects of life, but not in the sense of deep brotherly love.